So we're going to continue on in our New Testament survey, part of our uh, Bible Institute. Most of you know we have an online Bible Institute. We had 695 students this morning when I looked. Uh, so it grows pretty much every week. They're from all over the world. Anybody can take our classes. Uh, they're all free. There's no charge for any of it. And you can earn an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree in ministry if you would like. Just go get signed up and uh, start taking courses. And you can do what you're doing now. You can sit on the courses that we're doing here. And you can just take courses to learn more. You don't have to take them for credit, but uh, you certainly can. So we are working our way through the New Testament, and we're up into the book of John. And we're in the fourth chapter, and there's some interesting stuff that happens. I, I like the Bible, so I always say, this is my favorite stuff. But we're gonna, you're going to get into some area that I talk about all the time. So uh, let's talk about the Samaritans, and we're going to read in John 4, 4 through 9. Now... He had to go through Samaria. That's Jesus. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So um, that was a pretty big issue, the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And uh, why they didn't sort of associate is a pretty big deal. And the fact that Jesus actually went um, there on purpose to that town, and this was a divine appointment with that that woman, uh, and and a revival really started from this encounter, uh, as you uh, continue to read on. But what was the problem with um, the folks? Well, the Samaritans, um, they occupied an area that was formerly the part that belonged to the tribe of Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And so the capital of that country, of, of those, the, that part of the tribes there, was Samaria. And uh, it, was a, it was a great big city. It was a, a big deal. Um, when the ten tribes, and it sort of became the capital of the ten tribes, uh, when, when the separation of the kingdoms happened. Well, when they were carried off into captivity to Assyria, the king of Assyria sent people from other places to occupy that area. And that's how the Assyrians did it. Different conquering peoples had different ways of doing things. Uh, like when the Romans would conquer areas, they would, um, they would just sort of keep an army nearby uh, and they would allow the government that was in place to stay there and take taxes from the people, and those taxes then would come back to the Romans, and the army was there, in effect, to protect that area, but it was to make sure that the taxes came through to the Romans, which is what they wanted. That's how the Romans did it. Every group was different. The Assyrians, when they conquered areas, they would just redistrib- redistribute all peoples. So... Um, they would take people from other areas they had captured and they would put them into that area and take those people and put them somewhere else. That's just how they occupied things. So um, the Assyrians put people from uh, a lot of different countries, four different areas they had occupied, and they moved them into Samaria. Now, um, those uh, foreigners, those people, they intermarried with um, 
the Israelite people that remained. So they would take just about everybody captive, but there'd always be people left behind. They all got together, and they, um, living there, they became known as Samaritans. And at first, they, they really worshipped the idols of their own nations, the, the false gods they had brought with them. But they had a big problem with lions there, eating people. And uh, they... <laughs> that's a problem. And so... They thought that the problem was because they weren't honoring the God of that territory. So the Assyrians sent a Jewish priest in to that land and said, go and teach them some stuff so that the lions stopped bothering them. So this Jewish priest went back and taught them from the books of Moses, the first five books. So they took part of that teaching and part of all the other false mess they had, and they got this big old mess put together. And... Um, and, and so you, you had this big problem. So the, the Jewish people, even though the Samaritans sort of knew the first five books of the thing and, and they were some distant relationship, the, the Jewish people, did, they basically hated. The Samaritans considered them half-breeds. Um, they had some other things going against them. When Nehemiah first went back to rebuild a wall, the Samaritans opposed him. And so that didn't go down well uh, in history, and the Jewish people remembered it. Um, the Samaritans um, built a temple for themselves on Mount um, Gerizim, Gerizim, and, and uh, they insisted that that's where Moses had said they were to worship. That's going to come up in our story. Uh, and so they had that going on. Also, anybody that the Jewish people kicked out of Judea ended up in Samaria, and the Samaritans gladly received them. And so you had all these people that were sort of outlaws anyway, all mixed into this whole place. And, and so that's the dynamic that um, is existing in the time of Jesus. So the Jewish people hated the Samaritans and vice versa. So for Jesus to walk right through uh, and, and go have this encounter was a big deal. So I'm just trying to put it all in context, what a big deal it was. Um, most of the Jewish people would walk around. They'd go out of their way not to go through Samaria, even though it was quicker uh, in, in a lot of journeys, just to stay out of there. So... Jesus really breaks down that barrier by going, which is what he does. And he, when he um, preaches to the woman at the well, when he shares with her, um, what ends up happening is she goes and tells other folks, and a revival sort of breaks out right there in the spot. But their conversation um, moves into Jesus talking about spirit and truth. And most of you have heard that. If you're believers, you've heard that. Uh, so let's talk about that. Let's read it in 19 through 26. So the woman said... I can see that you are a prophet. Now, she says that because Jesus has just sort of lovingly confronted her on the fact that she's had five husbands, but, but, and, and it's, she's basically a big mess. He's lovingly confronted the fact that she's got issues. And she's out at the well um, by herself, which is another big deal because the women would have gone socially together to the well to gather water. That's what It would have been part of their social dynamic. And they would have gone and they would have hung out and they would have talked. And she was there by herself, which means she was an outcast even amongst the Samaritans. And Jesus kind of call, lovingly calls her on her stuff because he's, he's, he's always giving an opportunity to people to um, come into the kingdom. And so she has to deal with that aspect. So she changes a she changes the conversation after he says what he says. And he says, she's by saying, I can see that you're a prophet. So she's a little uncomfortable. So she changes it. So she goes from personal, this very deep personal conversation with Gene. She tries to make it religious, which is a lot of what happens a lot. 
She said, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am He. That's a big deal, because Jesus has lovingly confronted this woman for the, the way that she's living, and yet He really invites her to be a worshiper. He says, but, but there's room for you. God just wants people that will worship Him in spirit and truth. And, and so the idea behind that is uh, it sort of springs out of Deuteronomy 6.4, which we've talked about here often, which is when um, it's known as the Shema, when Moses lays out to the people of Israel how they're supposed to love God. And he said, you, you should love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Uh, Jesus takes that because the Hebrew word for might um, really includes everything. And Jesus always, so he takes it and makes it mind and strength. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. We talk about that here. It's about loving God all in. That's how we're to go to God in worship. All in with all that we are. And, and, uh, and so it's an engagement of the whole heart. That's, that's the idea of worshiping in spirit. It's, it's just coming to God with everything all in heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and also in the truth. And we, we know the truth from reading the Word. And we know that Jesus is truth. And so we come with all of that combined in order to worship God um, in, in the way that, that He calls us to as His children. So that's going on in there. Then, John 4, 46 through 54. So this is the second miraculous sign I want to read to you here. And uh, so there's, remember in John, there's seven signs that he records. There's lots more. He said we can't even write them down, but he works on seven. And seven I am statements, we'll start the first one of those two, but we'll look at the signs that he's recorded for people to see. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. That was the first miraculous sign. And there was a certain royal official official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servant met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as the time with his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday, the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. So that's the second. The third sign. This starts in John 5. uh, And I don't know how long some of you have been here, but if you were here a few years ago, I got into a verse in John 5, and then I talked about it for about four years. And... uh, (laughs) And the verse is, do you want to get well? It's coming up because it, I think it speaks volumes. So I'll talk about it here in a minute because I like to talk about it because I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. <laughs> so sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. 
Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he said, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, what's such a big deal about this? It's a a miracle, for one thing. It's cool. This guy had been at the Pool of Bethesda, which was known to be a place of healing. Uh, There's a hospital called Bethesda now. You probably heard it uh, from the Bible. And um, this guy was there 38 years, and nothing had ever happened. Nothing had changed. So 38 years is a lifetime, especially back then. So in, in effect, his entire life has spent at this pool as an invalid. And that word is an interesting word, and just looking at it, um, so in effect, his life till that point had been sort of invalid. And Jesus, this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus sees this guy. Nobody else has seen him. He said, I don't have any friends. There's nobody around to help me. I'm just here. I'm, I'm all by myself. And, and don't you love that about Jesus, that Jesus sees those people everywhere he goes? And goes over and starts to talk to him. And so the question is huge. So he says to the guy, do you want to get well? Now, you, you, you might think, and his response is, well, that's why I'm here. Of course I want to get well. But Jesus is like, really? Now, because this has been your whole life. This is what you know. This is what you do. This is what you've done every day for 38 years as you've been here. If you're made well, everything's going to change. You, you might have to go get a job. You're going to have to move. You're going to have to start doing all these things that you're not doing right now. And, and you sure that's what you want. That's the big question. See, because a lot of people, a lot of people want to better their circumstance but don't want to change what they're doing that's causing big chunks of the problem. And that happens all the time. And, and, and the, they say, well, no, I want to get healed. Oh, really? Because, you know, this, this is a, you, you know what you're asking. And that's what Jesus is asking. See, do you really want to get well? Or, or is what you're hoping for is that your circumstances will get better, but you don't have to change anything? And see, that's, that's not how God operates. See, God always wants the very best for us. God wants the, a life that makes a difference. God wants us to, to live full, uh, to, to trust Him, to, to, to move in the direction that He calls us. He wants us to experience full and abundant life. And sometimes we get sidetracked and we start settling for things that are familiar instead of what's really best for us. And, and so the question that He asks is huge. Do you, do you really want to get well? And, and then when, when Jesus, when He says yes, yes, then Jesus says, all right, get up, pick up your mat and walk. 
Now, he didn't have to respond to that. That's what I love about that. But he demonstrated he wanted to get well. He did just that. Picked up his mat and started to walk. And, and so everything now about his life was going to be different. And Jesus, so Jesus kind of sneaks out of there. And he just, he's hard to find when, you're, when these people are looking for him sometimes. And, uh, but I love the fact that he tracks this guy down. And he says, hey, don't go back to doing the stuff that you used to do. You, there's no life in it. Now that you're well, live in a new way. Live following me. Listen, live differently. And so that's what's going on. It's a huge miracle, but that's the heart of God. See, a lot of times we, we get stuck and, and we're trying to sort of have our circumstances improve without making, you know, without being willing, let's put it that way, without being willing to yield to the Holy Spirit and have Him change us in the areas that we need to be changed. So um, there's like four years of sermons on that. <laughs> in, the, in the background, shirts, wristbands, websites, it's all there. <laughs> and then I finally moved on to the John 6. <laughs> I will spend some time on a verse. It's healthy to think through verses. Okay, then the fourth sign happens in John 6. One and following. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous sign he performed on the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will these go among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place. And the man sat down, about 5,000. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. So along with women and children, it's a bigger number. 10,000, 15,000. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who received it as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Okay, and that's another great passage of Scripture and another great sign that Jesus does, and there's so much in there. But I, I love the story. So Jesus has great compassion on people, and here's this big, big crowd is coming because they want to hear what Jesus has to say, and they're intrigued because of the miracles and stuff that they've seen. And so Jesus says, hey, these people are getting hungry. Let's get them something to eat, because that's how Jesus went. You know, I, I've told you this, that if you read the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is always inviting people to the table. Jesus feeds people um, spiritually, physically. It's the heart of Jesus. Always having them at the table. That's who he is. And so he looks around. He says, hey, there's some people here. Let's have a, let's have a fish sandwich party. He says to the disciples, come on, we've got to get these guys something to eat. 
And they, Philip says, eight months wait. Like, there's not even enough money to go and make this happen. We couldn't even find these kind of supplies. It's just, you know, he says there's no way. And, and I love um, the backstory on this whole thing. So Andrew, Simon's Peter brother, he speaks up and he says, um, hey, w- what we have is this little kid over here had five loaves and two fish and we sort of, I hope they didn't mug him for his food. But I always wonder. And if you read this account in Matthew what you find out is that the disciples were hungry and they'd already arranged for dinner for them and Jesus. So they, and and hopefully the little boy. So my thinking is five loaves, two fish is enough to feed 12 disciples, one Messiah and this little kid that they hope they included in the deal. But no way they could feed everybody else. They're hungry. They've been doing this all day. Jesus has been teaching all day and they're like, oh, we got to eat. And you know how it is. You you ever get hungry? And, And if you're like me, you start to get hangry and, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm with the disciples. I understand. They're getting a little hangry at this point. They've done everything. You know, like we, we need to eat. Send these people away. No, Jesus said, we're going to feed them. And he, he's like, we got five loaves and two fish, man. That's, that's what we got. And Jesus says, cool, bring them to me. So the, the huge thing here is that the disciples said, okay, willingly gave that food to Jesus or whatever. And my assumption is they just said, he's Jesus. He's the Messiah. If he wants it, he's worth it, and we just, we're just not going to eat. But neither is anybody else because what, they're going to get like a crumb. This, this ain't happening. And so they know what they have, and they give it to Jesus, and Jesus says thanks, and he starts to break bread, giving thanks for it. And he says to the disciples, come on, let's start distributing this to the people. The people are sitting in groups of 50, and uh, the disciples come. And, you know, I think the first one up to the line probably thinks, all right, well, my group's going to eat some of them. And he takes his thing out there and he starts to feed people. And the next disciple comes up and Jesus gives him stuff in his basket and he goes out to a group of 50 and then he comes back. And then so the guy who's fed the first group of 50 has to be shocked that he's fed 50 and he's walking back to Jesus. Jesus says, come on, come on, and fills the basket up again. The disciples are going, uh, go do the math sometime with 12s running out in the groups of 50 to feed 15,000. It takes a little while. So, and every trip, So you have to get every trip a disciple makes back with an empty basket and gets a full basket has got to just blow their minds because they know what they started with. So they're watching things, but this one was, they're all huge when he's healing people and everything's seen change live, but this one's huge. He's he's actually making food where there is no food. He's, He's demonstrating creative stuff happening there. And they keep coming back. And then... He says, go gather what's left over. And what's left? Twelve basketfuls. So it's significant. It's a, it's a basket for each disciple. So that they always know that Jesus is the source. And that whatever he asks them for, he's always going to return in magnificent ways. And it's a willingness to give that makes a difference. And you just can't outdo that. And, and so this, this, this miracle is significant. So, and you, you see me do stuff here all the time. You know, I do this five and two and one and... It really comes out of 2 Corinthians 5.21. I want you to remember it. But it also comes out of this whole idea of 5 and 2. If you're thankful for five things, encourage two people. One lost child gets back to death. It's a five loaves and two fish. It's a big deal. Anything that you give to Jesus like that, he takes and uses. And so that's why we're, we're always having you try and remember those things in the things that you do. And so, so now the people, cause they, and they like, people like food, right? 
They're pretty, most of us would agree. Most of us like food, I think. Um, these, these are, hey, this is, this is a Messiah that feeds us. Uh, and they think, well, that's really cool. So what, they, what they're trying to do, Jesus slips away because they're intending to come and make him king by force. So he leaves. And you think, well, what would be wrong with that? Well, he really, he wouldn't be really the king. He already is the king. But if people could make him king, he wouldn't be a king at all. He's the king because he's the king. And so nobody can make it. He is king. And, and so he's, you know, they would just try and make him king to get, to use him for what they wanted instead of realizing that he's the king and they're supposed to come and, and offer everything to him. So that's, that's an amazing thing. It's very cool. Fifth sign, John 6. It relates to that other sign. When evening came, verse 16, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark. Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or uh, three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached shore where they were heading. The next day... The crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered with the disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got on the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So it sets up an image. But now, so now we're, he, John is making sure you see that Jesus has power over nature. Because walking on a water is pretty significant, um, if you've ever tried it. How many of you have ever tried it? Come on, you know you have. And, uh, <laughs> and like three and a half, Jesus walked out there for a long time. And, and they were freaked out. We know in some of the other stories, and Peter does his whole thing. But in John, it just says, well, you know, then they, willing, they let him on the boat. He was coming on the boat anyway. But uh, he was king. And people were starting to go, well, there was only one boat, and that left without Jesus. How in the world did Jesus get over there? And it's a pretty big deal. And it's, they're tying in the bread here again. Just a second. Watch. John six thirty five. Jesus said, I am, and it's the first of the I am statements, the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So this is one of the seven I am statements that he, where he says, I am, and then makes some major declaration about himself and, and uh, what's going on. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so he's just fed all those people. He's connecting back to that bread. But that was a physical thing. But what he's talking about now is that he's better than... And bread was like the main physical staple um, in the world. And it it still probably is. Um, So it's significant. If you have bread, you survive, pretty much. If you have bread and water, you live. And um, so this was a huge deal. But Jesus is saying, if you come to me, you'll never go hungry or thirsty again. And he's talking it in a, in a, in a spiritual way, that they're going to find life in him forever. And so he's making this connection because a lot of these people now are sort of stirred up about the fact that he actually did feed them fish sandwiches. But what he has to offer them is so much greater than that. And he wants to make sure that they get it. And so he makes this big statement of, I am the bread of life. And those I am statements that we're going to be reading about in the future, each one is significant because it's a claim in deity. He's, he's connecting himself that he is, in fact, fully God, 
and fully man. Um, because that I am statement is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And uh, it's the one revealed to Moses at the burning bush where, where God's there and Moses says, who are you? And he says, I am who I am. And Jesus is making that statement in connection with these phrases. And, and there's an invitation there to come and believe. And that's throughout the Gospel of John. It's a constant, come to know Jesus and believe that, that he is in fact the Messiah, the one who was sent in order for us to give life. And you'll find life and spiritual life, eternal life, everlasting. Good enough for today. If you're watching my video, thanks for watching. Come and visit when you can. We'll see you guys. God bless you.